0: Yeah, I was having a get together with my family on Friday night, and I started getting alerts around a couple minutes after five o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, "Why is my phone phone blowing up?" It's like, "Oh, games have started. Six p.m. games on the East Coast are five o'clock uh, kickoffs for me." And not, I, I mean, same same
1: deal for us. It, it was like, you know, as soon as you get in the door from work, you and uh, and Greg or and Frank are sending messages back and forth about. Salisbury is already on the board and I'm like, I'm barely even in the door, you know. So it uh the season's underway and it's kind of cool the first week when they have the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday night games. They're they're sort of uh, you know, 48 hours nonstop D3 football.
0: That is pretty fun. I, I don't mind though that we just have like one week with a bunch of Thursday night games because uh, you know, I really like the rhythm. Of the football season people who ask me if i prefer d3 football.com to d3 hoops.com the best part about uh d3 football is the fact that football has this weekly schedule and the cadence is you know it's just perfect you get us an opportunity to do games do analysis do a top 25 poll do some features do some predictions and then have another week yeah,
1: and I imagine for you, uh, you know, a Thursday night roundup, a Friday night roundup, a Saturday top twenty-five, and a Saturday uh, other games roundup is like a, a lot of lot of rounding up.
0: Yeah, I would prefer to round that down to just a couple of roundups a week. That would be great. I knew there was a math joke coming.
1: It was my understanding that there would be no math. Football fans, it's now time for the
0: D3Football.com Around the Nation Podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, where we're in our 13th season of podcasting and our 21st season of covering Division Three football. We welcome you to podcast number 240, the one with all the surprises. It's the podcast for September 9th of 2019. And thanks for joining us once again. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com.
1: And I'm Keith McMillan, the smooth-voiced former player, co-host,
0: Smooth operator, right? No need to ask. Uh.
1: That was terrible. Sure, smooth operator, whatever
0: you say. And this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. Gotta Have It makes custom 3D logo fan foams for NCAA teams. Keith, I know you have a couple of these in your possession i have a couple of these a few of these right here on my desk um they're pretty substantial things uh, that are uh, the um you know that are made uh, for and about division three schools this is a group that is partnered with fan fave inc the official logo maker for the uh, four major pro sports leagues you can have these fan foams for your den your den who has a den your man cave etc just like you have for the NFL teams custom made for your school. This is available to D three schools for the first time ever. I have here on my desk, a, a UW whitewater and East Texas Baptist. I have a Mary Harden Baylor. I know you have a couple of these yourself.
1: Yeah. I'm staring at the, uh, the purple Raiders and Johns Hopkins blue Jays right now. And the cool thing is, is this is a logo. It's a little bit better. It's better than a sticker because it's uh, it's 3d. It comes off the wall. They're super official looking. Um, and I thought the coolest part was um, after the, the randolph making johns Hopkins game on Thursday, got a chance to, uh, to go talk to Henri, who is um, one of the guys who is involved with making these. And the best part about it, as you mentioned, Pat, of D3... So Henry's the guy at the the Johns Hopkins tailgate, who everyone comes by to his his uh, table to get some barbecue and some some baked beans and and pulled pork. Um, they're talking about the game. They these this product is official. I mean, like like you said, it's for uh, you know the NFL has it, NHL, NBA, MLB, Division One schools are are getting on this as well. But it's it's in and of D3, and, uh, and that's one reason you should support it. The other reason is because it looks official. It looks dope.
0: Yeah, exactly. If you're looking, you know, let's say, hey, maybe I might bring one of these to my cube, right? If you're uh, at a, in a cube farm, or you've got a desk, or you've got an office, and everybody else has their fancy, I'm going to say Syracuse... Just because I know Syracuse had a really fun Saturday. Uh, Their, you know, their fan foams or their things, their memorabilia from their big time D1 school. Right. And what do we got? Well, now we've got this. So if you want to get one of these for your school, get your school on board with this. Visit gottahaveitfanfoams.com gotta have it fan foams.com. if you're looking for a fundraising opportunity for your program you're a coach you're an athletic director you're uh you know someone who's in charge of promotions for your school go do that as well uh go to that website gotta have it fan or email h hammond at gotta have it fan foams for more information if you are on the uh, podcast page We'll have a link for it there, too, just in case uh, that's too many letters to spell while you're driving to work. Do not text or go to the website while you're driving to work. But got to have it, fan foams. You got to have it or you're not a fan. We thank them for sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation Podcast. And, yeah, finally, Keith, we have a week of Division Three football in the books, a chance to actually see teams on the field rather than project them on paper. And, you know, the way it goes, right? That first week always challenges our preconceived notions in a bunch of ways.
1: I love week one for this very reason. First, it's just great to have football back and to see the players you wanted to see play back in action. But it also just takes all these unknowns or think you knows and moves them into the realm of the known. And even then, what you know is, did you see one good game or one bad game? Was it a fluke? Was it just this particular matchup or was it a harbinger of things to come? I think we can get suckered by the week one results a little bit if we're not careful. You know, Randolph making open with a loss, but that's a loss to Johns Hopkins. And I'll take one down to the wire loss against a top 10 team over a 51 0 win over Dickinson any day. Well, I think we get more out of seeing Concordia Moorhead go to overtime with UW Lacrosse than, say, Alfred beating the Coke commercial out of Teal in a 42 0 win. With one left. But there were some results I feel we can read into from week one.
0: Yeah, I think the one that, of course, uh, the uh, people were most surprised about whether they should have been or not is another question. But, uh, of course, Brockport losing to Hobart by the score of 33 to 7. Uh, Keith, I know neither you nor I had Brockport on our preseason top 25 ballot. But not everybody knew, right, that uh, Joe Germanario had left Brockport and the, had gone to Ithaca. And and in all honesty, Keith, you know, there is certainly were lots of open questions about would that really matter? Right. Brockport known for its defense. Uh, defense carried them quite a bit last year. But a lot of those guys graduated as well. And that uh, at least a good to see how that looked on the field. And it did not look great if you're a Brockport fan.
1: No, I mean, it certainly didn't. And in. in quarterbacks especially in D3 when you have one really elite quarterback can elevate a program can take sort of a 7 and 3 program make it a 10 and 0 program that wins a couple of of playoff games but i think in Brockport's case it was much more than a one man situation too because not only did germanario head over to ithaca but you had seven all region players uh, on brockport last season who aren't back this year so it's it, it, and their offense, their defense, their line, their you know secondary, they're they're guys who are uh, across the 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 fabric of your team. And so the real question was, is Brockport a reload program? Like, where, are they at the point where they can they can just bring in a whole another class behind a really special class of kids who graduate or who move on, or was that just one really special class? And you know, our opinion based on our top twenty-five vote is. Until we see otherwise, it it, pro- it is just one special class, and and you know I've had some conversations with coaches that we should have this conversation on a different pod, where uh, where coaches who've had great seasons yeah. didn't realize how hard it was going to be to sustain the success. It was it was easier for them to get there, and, and then you know when they had to go out on the recruiting trail a month later than everyone else, uh, they didn't they they weren't in the same place, or they they weren't able to bring in quarterbacks behind their star quarterback when when they have a star who's a sophomore and then you can't you can't recruit guys because nobody wants to come and sit behind guys like that so I know we're getting a little bit off the the beaten track here but I, I think it's it's sort of a big philosophical question that we can that we can dump into this one result and I think Pat you and I would both be lying if we said we saw Hobart 33-7 you know and, and Hobart didn't even really run the ball well on Saturday so it was it was a lot of you know Hobart doing what they do successfully, and they they've always played well at home. They they were five and four last season, but prior to that, have pretty much been the Liberty League powerhouse. But I think too, you have to have some concern about what Brockport uh, has offensively, and and especially at the quarterback spot with uh, with the interceptions that Helwig threw on Saturday.
0: Can confirm, I did not see thirty three to seven. Next on the list for me is one that maybe not a lot of people have even paid a lot of heed to, and I thought I was really interested by this game when I saw it on the schedule because it was kind of a departure for uh, for Franklin to, to have this game, and then a really good game for Benedictine, which has been kind of you know wandering through the wilderness for a couple of years. They announced that they were going to go to Division II, and so last year... In, you know, starting in September, they were going to be a member of Division two. Uh, they were then not eligible for their conference title. And very quickly the university backed out and said, "Hey, that's a dumb idea. We should be Division three. We're definitely a Division three school. So, last year, kind of a lost year. Coaching change uh, comes again because a coach that comes in thinking he's going to be a Division II coach may not want to stick around and be a Division III coach. So, third coach in three years. And, uh, you know, Benedictine is in this situation late in the game where they are down by six. And uh, Franklin is uh, taking the ball uh, with a little over two minutes left, trying to run out the clock. Keenan Davis forces a fumble. Two plays later, Benedictine is in the end zone. They go up 26-25, and that was the uh, final score. They managed to survive a uh, last-minute drive by Franklin. And, Keith, just a, a a game you would not have expected to go this way.
1: Well, certainly Franklin has been an, an offensive powerhouse for years. And and to be honest, they were that on on Saturday, 446 yards offense. They ran 81 plays. Uh, they just didn't get a lot of points out of out of their uh, offense offense on Saturday and you know, 252 yards rushing everything you think you'd want to see from an opening game except for this number right here and it jumps right out of the box score five fumbles four lost that's four possessions where they don't have a chance to score and then the obviously the key fumble there when they're trying to protect the 25 19 lead in the fourth quarter that one uh that one did them in but I, I think you're right Pat that for a program that uh Bouncing around a little bit, and, and Benedictine is right in the Chicago area, within close proximity to to several other D three schools. So it's in in a very big uh, D three pocket, so to speak. And, and and I think my opinion would be that it belongs in D three. But it's certainly you know each school is up to itself to uh, to determine. But when you see program beat a a you know a, a consistent conference winner like Franklin. then you really feel good about about the decision they made. I know Benedictine has to feel that way after this opening win.
0: Slightly more people paying attention to the game between St. John's and UW Stout on Saturday, a game in which Stout led seven nothing at half. Uh, and then uh, St. John's scored a couple touchdowns in the third quarter. And uh, UW Stout had two shots to uh, try to tie the game up in the closing minutes, and St. John's comes away with the win. And the uh, reaction of the top twenty-five voters is a little bit, uh, a little bit mixed, I guess. Uh, you know, some people not, uh, you know, not worrying about it. Some people maybe sliding the Johnnies back a little bit. They end up losing one spot in the poll, but uh, you know, Keith, I, I thought this was not completely unbelievable.
1: Well, yeah, I think the the storyline coming into is Jackson Erdman, the the All American quarterback has to replace his entire receiving core, at least the, the the top five guys from last season. So you know the the offensive struggles, I guess, probably a little bit to be expected. But and I don't think um, a seven point win over UW Stout is that surprising, even for the number three team in the country, because this is sort of what. What St. John's does, um, they'll play a, a Wyack school earlier in the year. You know they've played some some schools from other conferences in Minnesota, and it's just a ridiculous blowout. It's not a good game for them. So this is a much better test for St. John's. Even though Johnny's fans may look at 14-7 and go, eh, not that impressive. Stout is a is a pretty stout, for lack of a better word, um, mid middle of the YAC team, and it's it's a pretty good um, you know way to have to grind one out in uh, in week one.
0: Uh, we had ranked UW Stout number 39 in our preseason uh, ranking and kickoff. So, uh, I, yeah, I think that this is uh, you know any time that you're going to go to any of the top seven out of eight, maybe the top eight this year, YX schools, uh, almost anybody should uh, should should expect a battle.
1: Yeah, and and it was a battle for the Johnnies. He trailed at the half, seven zero, and uh, got on the board late in the in the third quarter, and then. I got on the board quickly again right after that two touchdowns within about two minutes of the third quarter. And that was the only um, scoring they had. You know, one was a was a nine play drive capped uh, by Jackson Erdman uh, and and then uh, on a short touchdown pass. And then he hit uh, Henry Trost for 46 yards uh, shortly after that. So uh, they they had I mean, they had a nice day defensively. I, I think if you if whatever worries you may have about that offense you got to be excited about what they did defensively stout only had 177 total yards ran for 41 on uh 36 attempts so that's a that's a really nice day rush defense wise and i know when you when voters put saint john's at number three it was largely on the strength of having this this elite quarterback back well they're pretty solid defensively and so johnny's fans can feel good about that can feel good about the fact that they, they played a pretty decent school rather than having to play like, you, you know, your Northwestern or your Saints, Alaska and winning 98-0. It just doesn't do a whole lot for your program except to get, you know, 12 levels of guys in, um, you know, rather than playing all 12 strings. It, it's nice to uh, to, um, you know, have to battle and, and find out a little bit about your team. And it's and, and what we found out Saturday is that the Johnnies are pretty gritty defensively and they did just enough offensively.
0: One more really surprising result from Saturday to talk through is Southern Virginia defeating Montclair State 34-21. Keith, I can't really even wrap my head around this. Uh, Southern Virginia has has struggled quite a bit uh, since it moved to Division Three This year, they're not even in the NJAC anymore. They've moved to the Old Dominion Athletic Conference, which is uh, great for them, certainly from a geographic standpoint. But uh, last year, Montclair State handled Southern Virginia well. S- Southern Virginia is just, you know, not... Uh, it's a program that's trying to build and put something together still. It- it's been through a few coaching changes in the last few years. Uh, Delane Fitzgerald, who uh, has since taken Frostburg State to Division Two. Uh, You know, was a was a head coach there not all that long ago in the grand scheme of things. This is an impressive win for Southern Virginia.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, Montclair State, eight wins last season in the NJAC, a team that some people thought may be a a contender to win the conference this season. And, you know, certainly can still do that. Right. Because it's now a non-conference game. But um, I I think the thing about Southern Virginia is there they are. An interesting program, the way like a Coast Guard or 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 Norwich or or somebody like that is interesting in that they have um they're recruiting a specific subset. In this case, uh, you know it's a it's a school of Latter Day Saints, and so their their recruiting pool is not just what you know they don't just draw a circle three hours from Southern Virginia and and recruit everyone around there. They're not only recruiting kids with thirteen hundred SATs like they have a, an interesting. um pool that they're recruiting from they also have a uh you know the head coach is is a, a guy whose name you've heard of before uh and edwin Mulotalo. so um
0: you
1: know i think it's an intriguing program in some ways but i don't think uh, that that i saw them beating montclair state
0: no definitely a big surprise one more surprising result from week one involved denison defeating ohio northern we'll talk about that more when we come back in just a moment And now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Jack Hatem. He's the head coach at Denison. His team one and with a big victory against Ohio Northern on Saturday night. Coach, congratulations on the win and thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks, Pat. I'm, I'm happy to do
0: so. I bet pretty happy after the way last night's game went as well. Uh, you know, started off and, and I've been reviewing a little bit of tape here while, uh, you know, over the course of uh, the afternoon and just kind of watching back on some of Saturday night's games, reminding myself that uh, you guys got off to a, a pretty bit of a slow start in the in the game. I know it ended up being a 42-13 win against Ohio Northern, but talk us through the first quarter or so.
2: Sure, the first quarter was interesting. They did a nice job. They gave us a completely unexpected look on defense, and you know, so we had to make adjustments to that, of course, and then we had a couple critical penalties and a turnover or so, and um, so yeah, it was a little bit of a slow start.
0: Slow start, and I have to expect any time you're breaking in a new quarterback, that has to, uh, there has to be an adjustment period for that as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's a sophomore. It's his first start. We think he's a great athlete. But, yeah, there's absolutely the, those first game jitters, especially when you're young.
0: I think everybody knows about uh, Kanan Gabley, and if not, if you're new to the podcast, he was really good at quarterback for Denison, not just last year, but for, uh, for several years running. What was it like knowing that you did not have him in your arsenal coming into the 2019 season?
2: I mean, you know, there's such a comfort level when you have a kid like Kanan who started so many games, you know, especially last year going into his senior year. You know, there's there's that comfort level with everything he can make right on the field. You know, besides besides just the athleticism, the ability to run and throw, you know, he's an experienced veteran quarterback, so he can make a lot of things right. And, you know, with a young, year starter, you know, like Drew, you know, you're not sure those things are going to happen. You know, He's a great athlete, so... So the comfort level was certainly way different.
0: What's the difference, or not what's the difference, but what is uh, Drew Dawkins' game like? What does he bring to the field?
2: Boy, Drew is a really dynamic athlete. He has really quick feet. He can really run, um, but he has a really nice arm. He can throw it a little bit. He's a little bit short. He's he's probably a hair under 5'9", but... I think you know at the D3 level he's very comparable skill-wise to a Kyler Murray. He has those kind of feet, he's not extremely tall, but he has a really strong arm. Um so he's a really dynamic player. So we kind of compare him to that style of player.
0: What kind of changes do you make to the playbook? What kind of, you know, what percentage of the playbook would you say is available to uh, a new guy who's a, a sophomore getting his first start at quarterback like that?
2: Right, that's a very good question. You know, with Drew, we've had to tone it back just a little bit from what Kanan had. You know, Kanan started, you know, for for three and a half years, he was a starter. So with Drew, we tried to really simplify some things with him. We tried to really simplify the pass pro and, you know, some different things he might have to do or look out there. And also with his skill set, you know, we try to, you know, really stretch the other team a little bit horizontally and use him on the perimeter you know, to, to put him in a better situation. So it has been a little bit of a change going from, from Kane into him.
0: We should talk about the defense. Your defense does a fantastic job, holds Ohio Northern to, you know, just six points over the first 45 minutes of the game. And, uh, you know, uh, and that's a program that, of course, plays in a strong conference and sees great competition week in and week out and was also getting back a guy who was a pretty good running back for them a couple years ago in Christian Williams.
2: Yeah, no question. Our our defensive line is very, very experienced. Um, We have six seniors that are rotating in on that defensive line. They've all, at one point or another, been all-conference caliber players. Um, So it's a really nice, experienced group. We're really experienced at linebacker. So our front seven... Are a really experienced group. They've just played a lot of downs for us, and they're really the leadership of this team, and they really stepped it up last night. We're playing against a kid like Christian Williams, who's just an outstanding back. He's a beast, you know, and they did a really nice job shutting him down last night. Now, you know, Christian hasn't played for probably 18 months, Mm -hmm. you know, so, but still, with all being said, he's a beast. He's a great running back. So, really proud of our front seven and their ability to shut him down last night.
0: Coming into the season, were you guys kind of disappointed that after having been, you know, a co-champion or a tri-champion, shared the championship three ways in the NCAC, when the preseason conference coaches poll came out, you guys were, I would say, fair to say, a distant third with Wabash and Wittenberg combining for nine of those ten place votes. Right.
2: I mean, you know, I mean, maybe a little bit disappointed, but we've kind of, like, Come to grips with the under the the underdog role, you know. I mean, it is tough. I mean, regular season of the last six years we're forty three and seventeen, so we think we've proven a lot. But you know, obviously, we still have more to prove. You know, so we're very willing to play that blue collar underdog role. And and I'll be I would be not honest if I didn't tell you we really carried that into this first game. It's like, hey, there's nobody in America that thinks we can play against this team because they're an upper echelon on the OAC team, and you know, nobody still believes this is a football program. They believe, you know, we can't win without Canaan. You know, so I'll, I'll be honest with you, we carried that mentality all through camp.
0: Coach looked like a pretty good atmosphere last night, and when I watched uh, last year's game against Wittenberg, pretty much the same thing. What's it like, you know, for you guys hosting a game at home under the lights?
2: It's phenomenal. All of a sudden, we've won over our student body, and we've won over our community. You know, we had almost 70 recruits there last night, and the plate was completely juiced. It was fun. It was a great atmosphere. So all of a sudden, you know, if we're playing, if we're playing under lights at home in Granville, we're going to have a good crowd, and it's going to be a great atmosphere. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun last night.
0: Drew Dawkins certainly had a much better week one than Kyler Murray did, Keith.
1: Pat, I think you might have written that before the fourth quarter and overtime of that Cardinals game because uh, they they stormed back. They sent it to overtime. The Lions and Cardinals did tie in week one. But Kyler Murray led them to uh, 18 points in the fourth quarter and three in overtime. Just how we referenced earlier about how one elite quarterback can can bring a program up. I thought Dennison had that in, in the past several seasons with Kanan Gabley. And, uh, you know, even though they they went to Mountain Union in the first round last year after an eight win season, lost 60 to zero, it, got, it shows, you know, the difference between a really good D3 program having it hitting its apex and the best D3 program or the, the second best at this point. Um, it's still, you know, transition to a new quarterback, I think, is always it's it's just big in terms of you know the amount of experience a guy who starts for three or four years has. The you know the how he talked about how they're changing their offense um to to take advantage of his skill set a little more. And I think in D3, right, you're not always gonna have the 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 uh you know the six two strong arm guy who can who can you know throw from one hash to the other sideline or, or you know you're not always gonna have the super speedster who can who can elude pass rushers and and you know turn around and and throw it forty yards down the field. So you gotta work with the guys you have. And I thought uh, you know Dennison and 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 Coach Aidum had had talked about um, you know really in a wise way what what Dennison's gonna have to do to remain competitive and they certainly um, you know couldn't be more pleased than than what they got out of week one.
2: Game ball game ball game balls game balls game balls
0: this is the time on the show where Keith and I give out our game balls, and my game ball goes to UW Oshkosh linebacker Nick Nothi. Because of the rules on conversion attempts and all the statistics and all that, Nick, is, Nick doesn't even get credited with a tackle for this play, but it was a big one. UW Oshkosh is lining up for a short field goal with a little over three minutes left in the game, leading 20-13 to against Carthage, and a successful kick here obviously would have put the game away, basically. But the Red Men blocked the kick. returned it for a touchdown the six points cuts the lead to one 20 to 19 after a timeout Carthage elects to go for two and with the quarterback rolling out to the left Nothi was there to knock him out of bounds with fellow linebackers Tyler Jensen and Logan Heisey there as well just in case any backup was needed Oshkosh held on for the one-point win thanks to Nick Nothi and that's who gets my game ball
1: wow so you're gonna leave me to choose between seven touchdown passes and six and a half tackles for losses okay then uh with apologies to quarterback Gavin Zimbelman and his 497 yards and seven touchdowns in Aurora's 50-40 to 40 upset of St. Norbert. I'm going to go to play to stereotypes here and choose the defensive feet. <laughs> Delaware, Valley's, <laughs> Delaware Valley's Michael Nobile finished with six and a half of the Aggies' 12 tackles for losses. I think that's the grammatically correct way to say that, by the way, not 12 tackles for loss, although I think I'm in the minority there. In any case, DelVal completely wrecked Kane, holding the Cougars to negative nine yards, rushing two of 13 on third and fourth down, 2.4 yards per play and zero points in the first 58 minutes, 12 seconds. Nobile had 33 and a half tackles for loss and 15 and a half tackles last season, which was his freshman year, and he picked up right where he left off. And although he's been described as a player who's physically too good for Division III, he's six feet and 230 as a defensive end. So maybe he's just crushing it right where he belongs. He definitely belongs with this game ball because nothing halts an offensive drive more quickly than a backwards play, throws the offense off a of schedule, so to speak. To do that by yourself six and a half times, including once for a safety, is just being full of game controlling, momentum shifting plays, and even though DelVal will face tougher opponents, that's where I went for the game ball in week one.
0: Pronunciation 101. Budavistic. Monon Muhlenberg. German aerial. Nobile. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Nobile. rise in the poll if we're talking about you in this spot you are a team which is on the rise and the one i'm spotlighting is uw lacrosse the eagles do move into the top 25 this weekend after their overtime home win versus concordia moorhead keith although i was already previously voting for uw lacrosse and i think you were too i'm not sure that they are the second best team in the wyak but i can see where the voters are coming from it just looks odd to see only one wyak team in the poll. When there's no consensus as to which of the teams might be the second best, it makes it difficult, though, and that's where we were with our preseason poll. Still that way now in my mind, however, as Lacrosse and Oshkosh did not dominate this weekend.
1: Yeah, I actually had Oshkosh as my twenty-five, but Lacrosse was a huge mover for me this weekend too. And I think you have to keep an eye on Stout, Platteville, and Oshkosh behind Whitewater and Lacrosse in the WIAC. But I think the week one voters should be free to massively rearrange their thoughts on teams or basically keep them exactly the same, keep teams right where they were in their first vote. I pushed five new teams into my top 25 from the preseason vote I essentially did back in March, including Redlands, Hobart and Randolph-Macon, which all got uh, credit essentially for scheduling tough competition and then showing well. But the big riser for me besides UW-Lacrosse was a team that did the same, Washington-Jefferson. Opening up with a ranked opponent, Wittenberg, and then finding a way to win despite just 120 yards of offense. I get it if voters look at that and say, "Mm, it's not a top 25 worthy performance, but I believe the opposite. WJ darn sure could have found a Week one opponent it could have hung 600 yards on, but it played up and it got a little beat up, but on my ballot, they moved up.
0: Hey, before we go on to our next category, Keith, tell us a little bit about the Randolph-Macon-Johns Hopkins game.
1: Well, it was, a, it was a really well-played game defensively, which is not necessarily what was expected since both teams have uh, senior quarterbacks back in, in Burke Estes for Randolph-Macon and uh, David Tamaro for uh, Johns Hopkins. Tamaro said after the game that um, Randolph-Macon essentially, I believe in the John Carroll game from last year, it showed a, played a ton of zone and, and showed man, or maybe it was the other way around, but essentially gave an entire Uh, entire new look that that uh, johns hopkins wasn't expecting so hopkins uh even though it drove down for an early score with a lot of short passes it uh it spent a lot of the first half adjusting and um it was a really close game into the fourth quarter they got a tipped ball interception uh, with making backed up toward its own end zone set up a short touchdown drive to give some breathing room late in the game i believe that was maybe 14-6 or 17 uh, maybe I made it 17-6. Macon drives down, scores a touchdown, tries to go for two. Estes doesn't get in. So instead of 17-14, it's 17-12. And I believe they had a the ball once or twice more after that. But they just don't have – they can't – they don't have enough speed. And and Estes doesn't have quite enough arm to to run past people. And Macon has always been a uh, – under Pedro Aruza has been like sort of a run-heavy offense. And they they just – um they just struggled to get the ball down the field in, in two minute situations. And uh, you know, that, that basically was part of uh, part of the issue, but I also think Hopkins played really well defensively. And I think both of these teams benefited from playing one another in week one. And that's what you want to see with these, these not only exciting first round matchups for people who go down to watch the game or up wherever you're coming from, I guess you could come sideways. Um, but I think for both teams, they come out of that one please now obviously ran off making what liked like to win especially you get close enough to upsetting a top 10 team on your home field for your opener you got the the, the whole crowd there and the you know the way they've built the buildings around the field now and you, you can you know it's right in the middle of campus so the students are all there that would have been a huge program boosting win but I think you step back from that a little bit they, they're playing Averett in week two and Averett was a was a big winner over Hampton City in week one you take a little bit out of that Hopkins game and uh and feel good about it and i think on the the flip side if you watched johns hopkins you know give mountain union all it could handle in the semifinals last year and then you see well they only had 17 against randolph macon i i think macon's pretty good defensively and and that is a um, more more reflection on that defense than it is Uh, Johns Hopkins playing poor offense.
0: That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. Now we're up to our section on teams which will take a fall or are sliding down the top 25. And we've talked about a number of these already, but one I want to spotlight specifically is Wittenberg. Keith, you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago how W&J moved up. Why does Wittenberg move down to the point of nearly falling out of the top 25 entirely after an eight-point loss to a ranked team on the road? Swap spaces, perhaps, to 18 and 21. That's uh, often what I do on a ballot uh, when I have a, a head-to-head result that is between two ranked teams and they're that close together. Uh, that makes more sense to me from a polling perspective anyway. I know neither team had a lot of success on offense. Maybe that causes some voters to reconsider things, but these teams should not be nearly so far apart right now.
1: Yeah, I, although I think it's hard to vote for teams that lose in week one, unless they are really in impressive in defeat. Or I, I think, like I said, you should get credit for for playing a, a good week one opponent. But I can also see teams being wowed by some teams or voters being wowed by teams that they didn't have on the on the preseason ballot, like a Hobart, uh, like some other teams who, who all of a sudden creep into your into your ballot and maybe bump Wittenberg off, even though Wittenberg was really neck and neck with W and J. For my team, that'll take a fall. I moved Alfred out of the top 25 for now, despite a 42-0 win. And again, I'm giving credit to the teams who played the Johns Hopkinses and the George Foxeses and the Concordia Moreheadses. Concordia
0: Morehead? Concordia's Moorhead?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how we, how we do that there. But while I might have the right read on which Empire 8 team would look more like a top 25 team in week one by going with Alfred instead of Brockport on my preseason ballot, uh, that same scheduling logic should apply here. For one, so Brockport, right, they they get props for playing Hobart, a longtime Liberty League power coming off a rare five and four season. But secondly, that vote was made in the preseason when I thought All-American running back Nas Smith would be back for Alfred. So just remember that voters reactions are sometimes to
0: things beyond that immediate week's result. For my off the beaten path highlight, I'm headed out to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where one of last year's surprise teams pulled off another win in surprising fashion. Or maybe I need to go to Oberlin, Ohio, where the highlight actually took place. This highlight is a 23-yard fourth-quarter field goal by Greg Kearns, which is the sum total of the entire scoring summary in KZU's 3-0 win versus Oberlin. I would have had an actual highlight for you, but... Oberlin locks down its game broadcast, so you can't see them after the games are complete, which is fine, except coaches, hey, every single game is available for video exchange anyway, so why the secrecy? So instead, I'll just throw out there that Oberlin and Kalamazoo met on the volleyball court on Saturday as well, and Kalamazoo won 3-0 there.
1: For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I will go to Michigan. I'll go to Adrian. And it was not so much the path that was beaten, Pat, as it was the Bulldogs by Heidelberg. Adrian's past two openers had been competitive games with Ohio Northern, an OAC team that is roughly on the same level as Heidelberg and the same hour and 40 minutes away. But the highlights were all Heidelbergian here as quarterback Jimmy Gephardt had six touchdown passes, including four in the first quarter, and the student princes were up 30-0, 10 minutes and one second in. And the one time Adrian fans got to see their team score in the 57-7 loss was right after that. And it was followed by a Heidelberg kickoff return touchdown. So it was nothing but low lights for the Bulldogs. But for Heidelberg, it was enough to weather wonder whether it was just a week one mismatch weirdness. Or are we going to be discussing this team as the OAC's top challenger for a certain purple clad
0: outfit? Hmm, purple clad outfit. Surprise! now we're up to our most surprising result of the week Keith and in addition to the surprising results we talked about at the top of the podcast I have another one for you and for the listeners it's Whittier defeating Luther 38-26 which if you forgot it was a game on the schedule this season you could be forgiven I forgot as well. Whittier hadn't beaten anyone other than Occidental in nearly five years and they proved difficult to get off the field as the Poets uh, converted 13 of 16 third downs and they were on the field for more than 36 minutes Miguel Avina threw for three touchdowns and ran for another two in the win. A very rare Skyak-ARC matchup.
1: Mm-hmm. Southern Virginia over Montclair State was the most surprising win to me, followed by the Hobart-Brockpart score. But in the interest of variety, since we mentioned those earlier, how about Dickinson beating Washington and Lee? The Red Devils lost openers 51-0 and 41-6 in 2016 and 2017 against a program Randolph-Macon that's comparable to WNL. And last year, the Generals won in Carlisle 16-10. This year, coming off a 4-6 and six season, the Red Devils went to Lexington, never trailed, and won an opener for the first time since 2009. Ultimately, that result might tell us more about the strength of WNL or the strength of Centennial Conference football, but it was one that stopped me, along with McDaniel's win over Misericordia, to be honest, when I was scrolling through.
0: Keith, that result is so surprising that I was this minutes old when I learned about it. I'm glad I listened to the podcast, and I guess I need to spend more time reading the scoreboard. Did you ever work at a publication with a ticker tape? Uh, yeah, me either. But for those of you wondering, that's a ticker tape sound mashed up with a cool sounding track from DJ Mentos. And uh, he's the guy with the tracks you've heard throughout our podcast for the past few seasons. If you don't know what a ticker tape actually is besides a parade, go Google that. But we're going to move on with our stat of the week. My stat of the week, Keith. I'm going to see... Or, or I'm gonna call. Maybe I don't know the poker terms that well. I'm gonna call. I guess your seven touchdown game and give you one. Uh, give you another one. That's the one from FDU Forum quarterback Anthony Caserta, who threw for seven scores in a 56-48 win for the Devils at Merchant Marine. Caserta was 30 of 51 passing for 462 yards in the win, and FDU needed all of those throwing yards because hey, bonus stat, they committed 18 penalties for 171 yards. The, uh, the box score originally read some completely different number. That's because a holding penalty was input at 70 yards instead of 10. It's, uh, it's week one for the stat crews as well.
1: Well, I'm going to raise you some past defense stats of the week because I have a stereotype I need to play to as the former DB on this show. Funny aside, by the way, standing in the end zone with some ex-players at Macon, And uh, one of the guys from several years before me who had clearly partaken in some solid tailgating suggested he could, at his age, sub in for one good play at nose tackle, which led me to wonder if I had to play free safety at, at age 42, would I also need a cushion of about that many yards to avoid getting beaten deep? I will say that I can still to this day read formations and wide receiver alignments and guess the probable pass patterns that are coming, and I'd need all that help to cover anyone these days. Anyway, stats of the week. Portland held Fitchburg State to nine passing yards and 31 total yards in a 63-0 victory. That's nine yards on six completions and 15 attempts. So, you know, not like Fitchburg State wasn't trying. And bonus stat, the Falcons fumbled eight times against the Red Dragons, but somehow managed to only lose one. Wow. And because I'm indecisive and I like to give props to my fellow DBs, stat of the week, part goes to Claremont Mudscripts, Benjamin Cooney, and his seven passes defended. It wasn't enough to keep the defending Skyak champions from a season opening loss to Puget Sound, but it is a pretty dang active day back there. He had six pass breakups and an interception return for a touchdown, 27 yards. And even though there's another DB in the Skyak who made preseason All-American, Cooney is a sophomore, so this might not be the last we hear of him.
0: You know, anybody who's a D-back going against Puget Sound this year has to be ready for a workout, right? Those Those guys throw the ball like you would not believe.
1: Uh, my favorite game on the schedule every year was Catholic and then it was Guilford because that is exactly what you, they did back in the uh, late nineties.
0: You were talking about uh, needing a 42 yard cushion on, uh, on, on D back plays. When I first started working at baseball weekly, the the guy who was in charge then Paul white is about the age that I am now. And I remember him talking about, you know, reaching the point in his life where everybody in major league baseball was younger than him um, and uh, I, you know, same sort of thing for me now. At this point, I'm, I'm 46. Um, you know, Julio Franco's been retired a couple times for a, a couple times, and uh, it, oh, of course, I'm I'm blanking right now. But who's the the guy who pitched uh, most recently for the Mets and pitched for forever? The the big round guy. Not super helpful, I know. Bartolo Colon. Oh, thank goodness, because I was going to be uh, I was, was going to have to look that up, then that was going to be pretty embarrassing. Anyway. Yeah, if I try to stand in there or you put me out in right field for a batter or something like that, man, that ball is going to find me and it is not going to be pretty.
1: Well, I was uh, at the Macon game. I was standing next to one of my good friends, Chad Burns, who played uh same years as I did, and uh, I just said, you know, there are people here at Macon who who weren't born when we last played. <laughs> like all the college God. students oh. now. We yeah. weren't even born when, when we were players. So, you know, you feel old. Your
2: categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Spockets when we dance.
0: Right, now's the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. You can hit us up on Twitter by uh, adding us at D3Football, at D3Keith, using the D3FB hashtag. On Sunday nights, we'll get you uh, the best or the most interesting. Or the one we want to talk about most on this podcast, and we got this question a couple of times in a couple of ways, but I like this particular way of wording it. As Chad Hammonds, who is at J. Chad Hammonds, writes at D three Football at D three Keith, do you chalk St. John's up to early season jitters, being overrated, or worry of being kicked out of the MIAc? And uh, my immediate reaction is none of the above. But what's yours, Keith?
1: Uh, I mean, a rim shot. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> no, a good joke. Um, I think we discussed it a little bit earlier. I think Stout is actually a pretty good team, and I think that's the kind of uh, win you'd like to see St. John's have early in the season. Again, those of us from afar who who don't watch the Johnnies much, all we know is Jackson Erdman, and I think that those closer to the program will be impressed with the way the Johnnies played defensively and, and the the grit that they showed on on um, Saturday because the Mayak. It's not going to be easy sledding. You got at least two other really good programs and then, you know, a handful of, of schools who could rise up uh, at any time and be pretty good. So I, I think for the Johnnies, it's um, I wouldn't call it early season jitters. Wouldn't call it being overrated. I just say playing a pretty good opponent in week one, that's what you get. And, and that's what Wittenberg's saying. That's what Randolph Macon is saying. Uh, you know, even maybe your Brockport is saying that where you, where you schedule somebody in, in week one, who's pretty good. And, uh, you, you know, you may not get the result you want, but you get that you you get that test. And, and that's in theory, if you're thinking long term, that's what you need.
0: Interesting and really competitive week for the WIAC uh, this past week, Keith. Uh, we talked about, of course, that game and uh, you know, Whitewater handing it to uh, Dubuque. We talked about a, a really challenging game between Oshkosh and Carthage. Um, you know, Eau Claire under uh, another new coach uh, pretty much handled Loris. I think that's not unexpected. The one that, uh, the other one that really jumped out at me was that uh, you know John Carroll never really put UW Stevens Point away. Stevens Point hung in there, hung in there, hung in there, and really made it a competitive game on the road at uh, at John Carroll.
1: I'm actually glad you brought this up because I thought there were some themes where where conferences had bad days. Or bad weekends in week one, and some conferences looked a little better better than we expected. Um, the Centennial. You know, it wasn't just um, it wasn't just Johns Hopkins getting a win over a ranked team. It was uh, you know all the way down to Dickinson. It was Franklin and Marshall beating Lebanon Valley. It was you know the the conference had a pretty good day. Muhlenberg had a nice opening se- uh, win to open the season. Uh, I thought the NJAC. City. Not a good day for them because we haven't mentioned this game, but North Central came all the way out from Illinois and uh and and won that the game at Christopher Newport, a uh seven and two team last season, won that one easily, forty forty-three thirteen. Um, and Jack had the Montclair state loss. You know, Wesley's playing a non-division game and they they slapped uh Franklin Pierce around, but um I thought that, you know, Rowan losing to Widener, there just weren't a lot of good results. So there were some conferences that maybe are, are uh, as a whole, and I know nobody really thinks like this, like, you know, you're mostly just concerned with your own team, but it, it, you you can look at some of these weak ones and say, hmm, could be a down year. You know, the, the Sky Act could say, mm, actually we might be pretty good. The Redlands win over George Fox, main, the main one uh, out of that Um you know, but the Claremont scripts win, I mean, lost to, to Puget Sound, may cancel that out. So, like, there's some conferences that I thought had a mixed week one and some of them had a really bad week one as a group. And uh, were there any that, that stood out to you off the top of your
0: head? Yeah, I think one uh, we I would want to mention would be the Knack. My, 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 aye, aye, aye. Uh, we talked about Benedictine beating Franklin. Uh, we haven't really talked uh, much about aurora beating saint norbert that was a, a bit of a surprise and aurora uh you know they won by 10 but they basically had that game wrapped up and they had them pretty well handled in uh, don bb's first game as as head coach uh rockford beat mcmurray which you know may or may not be a surprise one of the middle to lower of the pack teams in the knack over a contender for the umac title uh and then eureka beating knox that's a that's a rivalry game. Uh, you know, Lakeland was in it pretty long against Carroll. Carroll being one of the uh, you know one of the bottom teams in the CCIW, but still a team that should be expected to win that game. And Carroll did win that game, but you know, hardly going away. So I-, I thought the Knack had a surprisingly good first weekend as well. I
2: am so good at lightning. rounds!
0: And in the past, we've tried lightning rounds here to end this podcast. We've tried meandering through every thought of yours, which was a lot of fun, but is kind of, like I said, meandering. So we're going to try something new at the end of the pod here, and that's called Last Word. And for me, my last word for week one is that, you know, week one is really the first time around for everybody. For players, for coaches, officials... For broadcasters, for you know, stat crews, I was at Hamlin on Thursday night and I saw two officials converge on a play on the sidelines, talk to each other for a couple of seconds, and then make opposite signals. One official said it was a catch, the other said it was incomplete. Yeah, stats for, uh, for week one might not be perfect, they might still get corrected. I read a box score earlier this weekend where a punter was listed as three for three passing for minus 26 yards it is really hard really hard to pass for minus 26 yards even as a punter and uh, yeah it turned out that that was incorrect so you know i would hope that you know cut some people some slack um especially cut the officials some slack uh because you know that is we need we need people to continue officiating. And if we uh, we, we keep uh, chasing people out of the officiating line of work, then, you know, the robots are just going to come and take over. and Nobody wants that.
1: Well, I can assure you that my last word does not mention robots.
0: <laughs> That's good. Take it away.
1: For the humans, um, those of us that that got games in in week one, you know, not everybody got the result they want. Wanted, uh, some teams took it on the chin pretty badly. Some teams had close losses. Some teams um, scuffled to win one. And, you know, whether you got the result you wanted or not, I, I thought it was, uh, you know, it's just good to get a game back in under your belt, to be back out there, to be back tailgating with the people you know and love. And uh, I thought the game that that exemplified this the most um, was Huntingdon and Guilford who played a game in Week 1 last year, and it was ruled no contest. Not a game. Not a game. Not a game. Because uh, there was a lightning delay with about 13 minutes left. Huntingdon was up 58-48 in the fourth quarter of that one. And uh, essentially, all those stats, the 58 and the 48 points, um, like they never happened. And so uh, even though they kind of got a Week 1 game in last, last year, not a game, uh, it didn't count for anything. And this year's game did count. Um, and it was pretty much just like last year's game huntington won this one 69 43 they had uh, 35 points in the first half added 27 more in the third to pull away in that one but it was a, a you know a, i mean you go all the way down to alabama from uh from north carolina from greensboro for guilford it uh, was worth the trip even though they they took the l they they um you know put 43 on the board and i thought when you go back and say Man, last year we didn't have a game. This year we at least got a week one in. I think all across the country, everybody can, uh, everybody who played this week can, uh, you know, can take a little solace in the fact that they did play. And as we turn forward to week two, there were a bunch of great teams who did not uh, open up in week one, including Mary Harden, Baylor, Linfield, and a handful of other teams who are in the top twenty-five.
0: And this was d3football.com around the nation podcast number 240 season 13 episode 2 released on september 9th 2019 thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week if you like this podcast here is the thing you do with podcasts you see you consider rating it in apple podcasts or stitcher or spotify or wherever you get your podcast, because that will help other football fans find it. You can leave comments directly on the blog page, if you like, about this specific episode as well. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman, production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the music pieces that we've used throughout the show come from DJ Mentos, and you can find him at djmentos.com, D-J-M-E-N-T-O-S. Thanks to our guest, Jack Hatem, and thanks to Sports Information Director Craig Hicks for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. So what did Kyler Murray do in overtime?
1: Oh, actually, uh, I think it was the fourth quarter. They, they scored like 18 points, and they came, They were down 18. The Lions were up and basically should have put it away, and he like, led them back. That's all. And they tied, though. In overtime, they each kicked a field goal, and that was it.
0: Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. We should definitely have ties, but they should be higher scoring, maybe like, you know, 50 to 50. Ooh.
1: There'll be a time to, uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.